This podcast is part of the Frederick Podcast Network. Learn more at listenfrederick.com. Welcome to season three of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. This is the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, season three. Welcome back to the third season of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Hey, it's Adina Mignona, one of your friendly co-hosts of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. I'm here with my other co-hosts, Christian Fox and Steve Merkin. Unfortunately, Brian Donahue couldn't be with us today. Apparently, spending occasions with family is a little more important than podcasting. (laughs) Of course, yes, I'm I'm joking. I know, I know. (laughs) Now, before I introduce our esteemed guest today, let me say that if you are enjoying the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, share it with other sci-fi fans in your life. Leave a review if you listen to it on one of the platforms that allow reviews, and then come over and join us in the Big Sci-Fi Podcast Facebook group, where we continue the conversation and have fun with weekly polls and trivia, even though I had an issue with the poll this week. It's a little Facebook issue. Okay. Now, I need to talk to the Star Trek fans in the audience for a minute. You're going to love our guest, because maybe you know this and maybe you don't, but his involvement, involvement has had a profound impact on our beloved franchise. We are talking today to David Livingston, who has directed more episodes in the franchise than any other individual director. Those episodes span Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. He's also been a producer starting back as early as Next Generation, and he's been with Next Generation since the pilot, starting there as a unit production manager. And he's a writer. He's credited with writing one of my own favorite Deep Space Nine episodes, The Nagus. Because on a personal note, I don't think I've ever said this out loud to you guys on the show before, but the more I rewatch Deep Space Nine, the more I've come to learn that Ferengi-centric episodes are actually my favorite. I'm I'm with you there. They're not my favorite. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I do love them. They are great. It's just a whole different microcosm of the universe. Well, Mm -hmm. so now... David is involved heavily in Trek Talks, an online telethon that will help raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition. And so we're going to talk about and that and all more whole tons of stuff today. Welcome, David. Please say hi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We're so happy you're here. And, yeah. uh, you know, as we were preparing to record this episode, uh, since I'm the hosting one, I asked my co-hosts what their favorite Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Enterprise episodes were. And I'll tell you that three-fourths of us said one of your episodes. I won't tell you which one of us <laughs> said another one. But what we want, want to start out by talking is, you know, what tell us about Trek Talks and, and you know, that you're involved with this now. And how did you get involved in it? Um, I am a photographer now professionally. And... For my personal work, I take a lot of photos with my iPhone and uh, a lot of street photography. And in 2019, uh, that summer, uh, I started taking a lot of personal photography on uh, street photography. And I'd come home at night and look at my uh, take and 90% of the photos were of homeless people. And I said, I think my iPhone is trying to tell me something. So I uh, continued for six months uh, documenting the homeless in uh, Los Angeles County. And uh, I decided to mount an exhibit and the Hollywood Food Coalition, which uh, services those who are less fortunate than us, uh, agreed to partner uh, with me for the photo exhibit of my iPhone photos. And we subsequently had two exhibits in early 2020. And based upon that relationship, I then joined the Hollywood Food Coalition as a member of the board of directors, also shooting their social media, uh, making videos as well as still uh, still photographs. And uh, last January, uh, John Billingsley, who uh, was uh, at that point the president of uh, the Hollywood Food Coalition and is now another uh, board member, and I decided to uh, have a fundraising event called Uh, along with uh, other producing partners called Trek Talks, in which we invited people from the Star Trek uh, community to uh, join us for a six hour uh, Zoom-a-thon to raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition, as well as money uh, for charities that uh, the participating guests had. And we had an amazing cohort of, of celebrities from the Star Trek community, both in front of and behind the camera. 
and we, re we raised a ton of money and uh, for the coalition. And we're going to repeat it again uh, this year on January 14th, 2023, trektalks.net. So everybody out there, please, please join us. We have a great group of people. Jonathan Frakes is going to be back. Brent Spiner is going to be there. Uh, Will Wheaton. I'm, I'm talking about the people that I've worked with, as well as people from all the new shows. So uh, it's going to be a great event. It's going to be eight hours and uh, lots of surprises as well. So yeah. for the audience out there, if you want to come and have a good time, uh, please join us. And if you have a couple bucks, uh, throw it into the pot. That's exciting. That I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. I didn't hear about the original one until about a month after it yeah. it was live. So I'm excited that now, you know, that the word is getting out. And I'm hoping now that people who are listening to this episode, uh, they're hearing it and they're marking their calendars January 14th. Well, awesome. Nina, it's on it's on, uh, it's on YouTube. So please go back yes. and watch six hours yes. tonight. Yeah. I expect you to do that tonight. <laughs> okay. Understood. Well, today was my last day of work for 2022. So I've got time next couple of days. So Maybe not tonight, but tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, so we've been promoting it. Well, I'm sorry. You, gonna... I was going to say. So, so David, do you do you watch Trek? Did you watch Trek before you got involved? Do you watch the newer things? When I was a teenager, uh, Star Trek was on the original TOS, but I was a man from Uncle fan. so <laughs> I I knew about the guy with pointed ears. Oh yeah, I did immensely enjoy. Uh, I'm a great Robert Wise fan. I love the first Star Trek movie. I'm, a lot of people don't, but I thought it was terrific. I thought it had great scope mm -hmm. and it was terrific. I love when they, the the movie where they came back to Earth and I, uh, when Spock dies. I mean, there have been, there've been great moments, mm -hmm. but my sci-fi tends towards uh, the dystopian. Uh, I'm a huge Blade Runner fan. It's one of my favorite Ooh, movies. Yeah. So I like, I like the darker side of, 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 of science fiction, even though I subscribe to Gene Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's um, vision that man's going to come out on the uh, the better end of things. Yeah. So, and that's what drives Trek Talks, my involvement with the coalition, and it drives what we're all here talking about. Mm -hmm. Because without Gene presenting this concept, uh, we have nothing. But yeah. because there's the basis, it provides the basis for everything that's come after it. So pretty amazing what this one guy did were saying, uh, mankind's going to come out okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, a pretty, definitely. pretty amazing thing. And it's so simple. Mm -hmm. And yet look what it's look what it's generated. Look, look at look at what's happened. But you so look back, you look back, David, and you realize that they created essentially this is what it's going to be in the TOS. And everyone has followed that rule of thumb maybe little variations, new characters added, things like that. But the same credo, the same concept that was established in TOS has been followed all the way through, through Enterprise and even into strange new worlds. It's still, it, the adventure is out there and, and it's all about the human story. Well said. It's, it's the ultimate simple premise. Premise is so important in all, to me in, in all forms of drama. If you have a strong premise, the audience will respond to that. And mm -hmm. Star Trek has an incredibly strong premise. And again, look look what it's generated. I, I've been watching it since September the 8th, 1966. And I haven't looked back. Um, but I will say this. I will say this. And I've said this before. And I said it too, when we had John Billingsley on the show. Was that I was burnt out by the time Voyager was in. But it was your show. It was Enterprise that rekindled my love of Star Trek. The simplicity of it and the way it went, that, that rekindled my love of Star Trek once more. Uh, that, that's great to hear. I am very fond of Enterprise and particularly some of my work on the show uh, mm -hmm. from a selfish standpoint. And mm -hmm. I am forever rueful that it didn't go the seven years. Yeah, First of all, I, just emotionally, yeah. emotionally and more profoundly financially, but, yeah. but, you know, from a selfish standpoint, but yeah, I, I thought we finally hit that the show finally hit its stride in year four. I thought Manny Cotto brought uh. in uh, a, a breath of fresh air and redirected the show. And, uh, but uh, Paramount had already made the decision yeah. uh, at the beginning of the fourth season that, it, that that was going to be it. So it didn't, it didn't matter what we did. 
uh, it was gone. It was they gone. were just going to get to a hundred and they had to get to a hundred episodes for syndication, and yeah. that's what they were going to do by giving it four seasons, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. Was, which is too bad. Did were there plans for a fifth season? Were there plans for a sixth season, or was it just like we're done? Um, as again, I wasn't on the show as a producer at the time, but I was told at the beginning of the fourth season that that was it. That wow. How do you so for those of us who who've never worked, you know, uh, in in television or or entertainment, what I'm always curious about is how is the decision for like which episodes you're directing? How how does that happen? Luck of the draw or okay. the lack of luck of a draw. Um, <laughs> okay. You 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 don't know. Uh, do they you, come and say, "Hey, we want you to direct this"? Do you have any choice in the matter? Like directors are booked prior to usually that script even being written for that particular episode. So directors do not get assigned to specific projects mm -hmm. in episodic television, at least in the Star Trek episodic television world. Things are a little bit different now, I'm sure, uh, mm -hmm. out there, but but uh, that, that was the case for my career. So what I if think? you got like a script and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't like this. Like, do you have, what do you, what do you do? <laughs> Uh, I mean, this happens to all of us in our yeah, careers. So we get curious. stuff that we don't like, well, right? It, it's happened to me. It's happened to me many times. One particular one. Uh, it was my first year freelancing, and I read the script, and I, I said, "This isn't Star Trek. There, there's, there's no, you know, there's no action. It's, it's not, it's not science fictiony. There's nothing. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with this material. Mm -hmm. I am petrified of it." Mm -hmm. Steve Oster, who had taken my job uh, as the supervisor producer, I went into his office. I said, Steve, I, I don't know what to do with this. I, I, I'm going to fail. They're never going to hire me again. He said, David, take the script home and read it again because you're missing it. I said, OK. So I go home and I read the script again. And I looked over at my son, who was, I don't know, not, not eight or nine at the time. And I looked at him and I said, Oh my God, I get it. It took me that moment to connect with my son and to really read it again and not just, you know, dismiss mm -hmm. it. And that was a real eye opener uh, about reading the script and looking for what the intention of the writer was and what's really there to find out again what the premise is and what the meat of it is and what the heart of it is. And I had totally missed what the heart of it was. Mm -hmm. So that that's one example. Okay. Was that show yeah, called one? The, <laughs> it was called The Visitor. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. The Visitor. That's like, one of my favorite episodes of Deep Chase oh, Nine. It's I love it, but it's uh, it gets me every time. Well, it's like I gotta I gotta be prepared for it when I'm watching it. Well it's... I, I hadn't seen it in 20 years mm -hmm. and I had to rewatch it again because on Trek Talks two they had a, a Trek Talks one we had a special panel about the visitor with Tony Todd and Rachel Robinson, who played the visitor, and uh, and Ciroc. And I had to look at it again. And I, at the end, I got emotional. I, yeah. I, it really got to me because I was now watching it as a member of the audience rather as rather than this petrified director who didn't know what to do to, to do with the material. Mm -hmm. I, I figured out what to do with the material. Yeah, was, like, well, well, yes, you did. You <laughs> what I did was I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. I just. I just stepped back. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I, uh, Ira Bear, who was the executive producer said, David, are you going to rehearse? I said, rehearse? We don't rehearse in episodic television. He said, well, maybe you should rehearse. I said, okay. So I had uh, Tony, Todd and Rachel come over to my house and we rehearsed in front of our fireplace. And we, if, thank goodness we did that because when we got to the stage, we staged everything in front of the fireplace on the set and we just blasted through it. Um, so, uh, but, but I did the least directing I've ever done in my life on an episode because it's let the actors act. And that was an acting piece. Um, mm -hmm. the main thing I had to do was to try and, uh, tell Tony Todd that he didn't have to cry on every take because he was so emotionally invested, um, which it was amazing what he, his performance. Yeah. I okay, had, when I. I was gonna say when that that episode came out, I was in in college, and I I think I don't think I was as impacted as I rewatched it 
two years ago, uh, maybe. And my my own father has since passed away, and it's been a it's been a very difficult thing. So you know, looking at it as in a you know now where I've lost my own my own dad, and I actually wrote a, a science fiction story, a time travel story that was about preventing it. Um, so it yeah, it definitely hits me in a it hits in a different way, you know, when it's it yeah, yes. <laughs> it's differently Fili now. Filial piety. It it was uh, and. I was fortunate to direct it. Ultimately, I realized that, mm -hmm. but it was the writing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Michael Taylor wrote the original script, and Renee Chaviera uh, did the rewrite. And and Michael recognizes this that Renee brought in a tremendous amount of of heart to it. So I'm a big fan of writers. I'm not one of these uh, directors who think that you know the director is the medium. Medium. Uh, especially not in episodic television. It's a writer's medium. Showrunners are writers. They're not directors. Show, showrunners are the executive producers. So I have every uh, uh, respect for uh, the word. You know, in the beginning was the word. So uh, we, we can't do anything without the word. And again, going back to Gene, Gene wrote something that then became something. We, and mm -hmm. you, get all, you get this cohort of hundreds of people to then participate to try and take what's written on a piece of paper and make it come alive uh, for an audience. So, you know, it, it, people in the business read a script and their job is to be able to picture it in their mind and, and figure out what they're gonna do to give it to an audience. Because if you give a script to the general audience, they're not gonna get any, they're not gonna get mm -hmm. anything. And it's our job to translate that with our, whatever skill set we have to make it come alive for the viewing audience. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So I've got a, I've got a technical question. So when you're dealing with something like the visitor and it's emotional and they're giving these really amazing performances, how do you deal with the monitors and the the focus issue? Because I've heard some people say that back in those days it was hard to like make sure that people were in focus and you do a take and you'd realize, oh no, they're not in focus. Um, you trust your camera operator, and camera operators have taken uh, a bad hit because of uh, it's called. Uh, video village now where you get 15 people standing around monitors watching what's going on. But ultimately, even when I had video village, uh, I would always ask the camera operator if it was good because you depend on that, the person who's actually looking through the camera to say, yes, it's good for me. So even if I thought it was great on the monitor, I would not accept that until the camera operator told me. So you, you depend on, uh, this, the skills of the crew to, to tell you what, if they've fulfilled their responsibility. It's, it's, a, it's a community of artists and technicians and artisans. Uh, it's not one person, it's not two persons, it's, it's a whole lot of people who all have to work in lockstep. That's why it becomes such a family. And when you finish a production, you feel like there's a loss. It's, 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 it, it's not a profound, you know, mourning, mournful loss, but it is a sense of loss. It, that you have all been collectively together in this intensified uh, environment, and at, at, at one point it ends, and everybody goes on to something else, and it, it, and it is a certain sense of loss. Well, you had mentioned in the um, Shuttle Pod show, which I just recently watched and listened to, um, that you that was one of the big positives about Enterprise was that it was the first show that was shot digitally. And yeah. you were able to see right there and then the quality of the shot through the video monitor. So um, that that was like was that the big breakthrough that you said? You know, I mean, you are trusting the the cameraman. You have to trust them because they're the expert with the eye. But you're also being able to to look at that and go, yeah, that was what I wanted to see yeah. from the actors. Um, I think it was the third season of uh, Enterprise, second or third that we. Uh, switched over to uh, digital photography, and I died and went to heaven. It's to me, it was the greatest gift a director can get technically because it's exactly what you're talking about, Steve. Where mm -hmm. you can see exactly what the audience is going to to see because you're watching HD monitors, and it also gave me the opportunity to always have a second camera running, even if I didn't have a particular point of view or set up for that camera. I put it somewhere because it's gravy. You don't have, in film, you have you have um, uh, a certain amount of film in the magazine that only lasts for a certain period of time. And then you have to change the magazine and put on a new one. 
Well, with digital, you can keep running. And if it, after you finish a film take, you say cut, then the wrecking crew comes in and they want to touch up everybody and fix the hair and fix the makeup and fix the props and all that. But with digital photography, you don't have to stop anymore. You can just keep rolling the camera and say back to one. We're going again. Nobody come in the set. We're going to go right away. And what it does is it keeps the, uh, the actors in the moment and it keeps the energy alive. So for all those technical reasons, to me, it affects the aesthetics of being able to get things done in a better way and in a faster way, and you're able to view it all. So to me, the digital technology world has profoundly affected uh, motion picture and television production. My life as a still photographer, I became a professional still photographer with, with digital photography. And mm -hmm. again, I couldn't imagine having to spend time in a dark room. Or I, 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 remember, I remember living from 24 to 36 shots on a, my SLR camera, <laughs> and that was it. And then I got my digital camera and I went, you mean I can take 85 pictures of the same thing in about 85 seconds and it doesn't matter? I, I took 85 pictures today. Exactly. <laughs> I, I use 128 gigabyte cards in my camera. <laughs> And I shoot at 45 megapixels. Uh, and oh, I can, wow. I can yeah. shoot all day long. So I, yeah. I go to an event now and I'll shoot uh, easily. Every event is at least a thousand photos. Yeah. Try doing that on film. Not no, you couldn't. And, <laughs> the cost was like, you know, okay, a roll of film is $3. And, and it's like every time you want to shoot 24 shots, you're, you're out, you know, nearly $10. And there's no cost. I, I don't know if you can see yeah. it back but that's my Epson 3880 printer. Um, I've been printing a lot of my uh, my work history. And if I had to do this through a Photoshop, oh, God. tens of thousands of dollars when mm -hmm. I can do it right here. I just have Amazon send me new inks and and uh, and new and new paper and I'm good to go. And, it, and you do it all yourself. It's yeah. every, everything I do photographically is it's all, it's only me and it's done here in my office. Mm -hmm. so yeah. when Crazy digital technology. So mm -hmm. even when you're like printing for a gallery, it's just all from that printer. I, I printed my entire uh, uh, iPhone exhibit for the homeless. It was called Still Lives, the Still Lives Project. It was all printed on that that printer. Can nice. I ask you a question about that that whole process? You you said you went in 2019. You went and photographed, you know, people, the homeless there. Have you ever gone back to those same locations where the photos were taken just to see what the situation has evolved into or devolved into one way or the other? Yeah, uh, my wife and I take our dog to a lot of the places where we went to. and We go to the Santa Monica to uh, uh, Pacific Palisades Park, uh, which I'm sure you know about. Mm -hmm. um, and we uh, we go to Pan Pacific Park a lot and, and in the neighborhood. And a lot of times I'll say to my wife, oh, there's there's what's his name? You know, we shot him. So a lot of those people are still there. I'm sure a lot of them are no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you guys know, but Los Angeles has an intractable homeless problem, which has it, it's it's really uh, affected not only the, the lives of the homeless and the unhoused, but all of us. It's it's affected all of our uh uh, quality of life. And we now have a new mayor, Karen Bass, mm -hmm. whose number one priority is dealing with the issue. And, yeah. and it's good that it is because the Los Angeles Times polling yearly says, what's your greatest concern, citizens of LA? And it is uh, the homeless and the unhoused uh, uh, situation. It, it's really horrible. It's horrible to drive down the street and see the tent encampments. And it's horrible to walk up and, and you know the smells and and just the the degradation yeah. and the drug addiction and the and the and the mental illness and yet I met the most delightful people photographing them because I I I I tried to make some kind of connection with them yeah and some of them are the sweetest gentlest people and and they were so grateful for me to even talk to them one woman says thank you. I said, thank you for what? She said, thank you for talking to me. Because most people just walk on by and they ignore them. And, and a lot of the photos in the exhibit were people walking by the homeless and looking at tourist attractions rather than the person lying on the street. Yeah. Um, so 
It's a very, it's, it's like you're talking about a whole different world, a whole different country from the East coast. Um, while, you know, certainly we have homeless, it's nothing like what I, what you're describing. It's nothing mm-hmm. like what I, you know, hear other friends out in LA describing yeah. it's weather. Yeah. Well, yep. yes, it's, <laughs> it's 20 degrees here today. So yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be what? 80 degrees on oh, Christmas day here. Man. David, you know, yeah. 69 right there. According to Mickey, we're <laughs> mm-hmm. 69. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's, it's the weather and, uh, yeah. Did, did the, oh, go, go ahead. No, no, I'm good. I was going to say, you know, did the passion for photography come out of directing or is this just something else? Did this, did you have the passion before digital and digital just made it easy? I, I had the passion before I, I used to take a lot of photographs, uh, in my younger days, but again, I was frustrated by the whole lab process and, and dealing with film. So again, I died and went to heaven when I had my mm-hmm. first Canon, um, uh, what was it called? The Rebel. That was my oh, first. Canon oh, Rebel, Rebel. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I, a, I had a Rebel too, yeah. I, I, have, a, I have two Rebels right now. Okay. Two well, different I versions. I, I took probably 100,000 pictures mm-hmm. of my, my, my first Rebel. And, and I've, I've become a, I'm a Canon fanatic. I'm a, I'm an Apple fanboy and a Canon fanatic. So those are my, yeah. those are my two uh, peeps. Sorry, cool. I, I'm 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 Samson, and I shoot with uh, Nikon. So yeah, my, my I, I, <laughs> I was a yeah, Nikon when Nikon first had their Coolpix cameras. That could oh twist. yeah, the Coolpix. Yeah, I love that because it could I could twist it and get really interesting views. But then they, it evolved into a way that it it didn't yeah. work so much anymore. But yeah, I'm Apple and I use Sony for video. But like it, the one I have that uh, does great video and does pretty good um uh, photography but i feel like it's such a fun like argument to get into with people mm-hmm. about like sony uh, versus canon <laughs> and nikon if people want to bring that talk, up sorry for trek talks i've had to do promos and we did a yeah. whole thing with uh, uh spoiler alert we did a whole thing with will wheaton i shot it all on my iphone by myself nice. no lighting no sound no nothing i put a little sure microphone on it i shot in 4k and we can't, even, we can't yeah. even put it out in 4K. It has to be 10, 1080p. So it, it's crazy, the technology. And what a what a wonderful opportunity for young filmmakers and photographers yeah. to be able to do all this stuff. I do everything at my desk with Final Cut Pro, mm-hmm. uh, Photoshop, and, and my digital equipment. And it's all just me. Mm-hmm. How, and that's not vanity. It's just the reality of what you what you can do. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I like I I bought the new iPhone 14 and like the, the quality of that camera is just it's amazing, but I'm also kind of annoyed because I spent money on this expensive <laughs> Sony camera and I'm like, well now I feel like I can do the same thing and yeah that's the, that's I make the, the right call, well, <laughs> but now I have two cameras that I can use when I'm shooting stuff, so it's nice. But and like, also for my homeless exhibit, I could not have done it with a a regular camera. The the iPhone is so small and mm-hmm. so unintrusive that you can get stuff and not be appear as threatening to people. Right. Mm. Yeah. 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 When you pick up an SLR, it's, it's like you're intruding in their lives, but yeah, with the camp, with the phone, it's, it's a quick shot and you're done. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're watching, cause you said you like watch Blade Runner and you watch a bunch of like dystopian movies. And when you're watching shows in general, do you, how, how is watching a show or a movie when you have directed, what's that like? Are you able to turn that, off a little bit i am the biggest sucker for movies of anybody it's the willing suspension of disbelief yes yes the moment this moment that the the main title or the studio thing comes on i'm with it and i am the worst critic because i love every every movie although i saw babylon last night because i get screeners and and we get Mm -hmm. it's a Talk about dystopian. It's a dystopian singing in the rain. And that's all I'll say about it. Okay. Oh, okay. You should all see it because I'm intrigued. Uh, yeah. He's Putting it he's, on the list. <laughs> yeah. Put it on your list. Brad Pitt's great. Okay. So did you see Blade Runner, the new one, the uh, 2064? Yeah, it was good. Okay. But can't hold a candle to the original one. And, and uh-huh. Harrison, Thank even with you. narration. Although the Thank narration- you, David. Thank you. Well, but the narration, I think, is important for audiences. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I, I, it, it, mm. it was very slow. It was very, very slow until finally uh, Harrison Ford showed up. 
So you're talking about the new one, right? Yes. Okay. And then all of a sudden, took, oh, yeah, otherwise no, it, it was very ponderous. And he brought in, and all of a sudden, the movie just took off. But it was still, it didn't have the intensity of the original one. Uh, that was, yeah, I mean, just, it, it's it's one of those just classic films. It, that same area that came out, you you remember Brazil. Yes. Love Brazil. Oh, again, same thing. Dystopian, dark. A Boy and His Dog, written by this nice guy named Harlan Ellison that came out. Also, remarkable film. A Piker yeah. writer. I just... <sighs> Never I mind love, anything. <laughs> it's the cinematographer for me. Like, everything... I don't know. There's something about it. Like, not only, like, was it a dark topic, but everything seemed uncomfortable. Like, even for some reason, like, when Harrison Ford is looking at some photos, that computer seemed unnerving to me. And I just thought it was just so fascinating. And I... I it's one of those movies where I just like, even though I don't necessarily always love the plot, I just, it puts you in this mood where it's just, I don't know how to describe it, but like the atmosphere is just so well done. Absolutely. But, yeah. I have a question for you though, Christian. Yeah. Replicant or not? Oh, I, I don't know. I, the thing is, I don't remember if they reveal that in 2049 because I saw the movie. I liked it, but I don't remember what happened. So <laughs> I, I don't have a good answer. That's okay. I say so. I haven't seen the new one just because there's just too much to see in life, and I just haven't seen it. But we're gonna, I'm gonna see it, and we're gonna have a podcast episode. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those ones again where like you need to. It's like Dune, where you need to focus and you need Mm -hmm. to like not be distracted because not watch it on my phone. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Watch it. I watched the new Dune on my my phone. I I didn't. I was on travel. I didn't have a lot of choice. But that makes sense. Yeah, but you were traveling. But it's yeah. just like, I don't know. Yeah. I need to go back and watch it because I remember liking it and thinking I had a good time in the theater. But like beyond um, what's his name getting the uh, the the mobile emitter, I was like, OK, I I don't remember what happened in the movie. Yeah. I don't remember a thing about it. But... <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. I was the one. I was the three out of four doctors that don't recommend it. I was not <laughs> the doctors. Did you you started that bit last week, right? With dude, yes, that's yes. a good bit. I like it. Yes. Um, I I do want to say that I I did watch as I mentioned earlier. I watched the the shuttle pod um because Adina had given me the the link to it, and I hope you understand that our show is different than that. <laughs> First off. They don't, we don't have booze, except I have this bottle of Star Trek wine. Okay. Oh, I, I want to get some. Oh, yeah. I've I had need the Romulan ale. Person. And then the other thing was, is that um, they had a prop on the table. Oh, uh, they had Porthos. Porthos. Yeah. I've had, nice. I've had Porthos since the very first Star Trek convention I went to in 2003. And he has stayed with me ever since. Because he truly was the star of the show. I and that's what sold me also. We had a beagle ourselves. So when I saw Porthos, it was like, this show's it. This he, show's oh, got a dog. That he, made it great. He was my favorite actor on the show. Yeah, which is which I, I don't know if it's like a joke or if this is canon, but that whole joke in Star Trek 2009 where it's like, oh yeah, we'll let you know when Porthos reappears. It's like, <laughs> but Porthos was beloved. Like, <laughs> he's such a great character and that was a good joke, but like, is Porthos really gone? Well, <laughs> actually, in the uh, the last the last portion of the audio book of the movie, Porthos's puppy does reappear from the transporter. Oh, okay, good. Yes, at yeah, the very just... end, at the very end. Was it hard, like, was it hard dealing with Porthos and making sure that Porthos was doing what Porthos was supposed to be doing in, in episodes? Um, I wish that actors uh, took direction as well as he did. And I tried, <laughs> okay. I actually tried the same technique of offering treats to the actors. <laughs> I was going to say cheese, yes. But, cheese but for the actors. It didn't work. It, it, it was much more effective with, with the dog. Uh-huh. That's good. Okay. That's so, good. Without naming names, can you like give us some examples of like uh, situations where actors weren't following the instructions? Um, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's, that's fair. No, let, that's let me, very let me, diplomatic of you. No, no, it's not even diplomatic. Let me make a general statement. The people that, by and large, that work in in entertainment and in episodic television, and specifically on Star Trek. We're thrilled to have the jobs because so many 
because getting work is not easy. And when you and when you get involved with a Star Trek show, you have an annuity. You have a potential seven years of your life locked up and financial security possibly for the rest of your life. Yeah. When we did the Deep Space Nine pilot. Um, we were shooting 14 to 16 hour days. It was it was brutal. Um, and uh, uh, Sadig was exhausted. And and he and I were having a conversation about it and he was complaining about the long hours and stuff. And I said, Sid, you better get used to it because you're going to be here for seven years. And yeah. he was asked at that. And seven years later, mm -hmm. because you knew if you got involved in a Star Trek show, except for Enterprise, yeah. you, you, had an, you had an annuity. So the actors are thrilled to be there. And their job is to take direction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody has their part to play. And if the director says something, you should pay attention to it. Doesn't mean you have to, to do it or to, to actually do what that particular director says, mm -hmm. but you have to pay attention and listen. So at least they all listen to me if they didn't actually take the, take the note. So in one of in one of the interviews I read with you, you had actually mentioned how you were not initially interested in spending your career in episodic television. You wound well, as, up, yeah. as a below the line mm -hmm. production manager, mm -hmm. uh, I, I went to film school because I wanted to be a producer director, but mm -hmm. I fell into below the line. Initially, I worked as a gopher and then a PA and then an uh, assistant director, unit manager, all of these below the line functions, which were managerial. And I what do you mean by below the line? OK, there's above the line are all mm -hmm. the creative people the producers, the directors, the writers, the cast, mm -hmm. the below the line people are all the, are all the technicians and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the artists, uh, okay. the, uh, the, the cameramen, um, the set, the set designers, all of the, all of the technical people and mm -hmm. the crafts people. Uh, and I was a, and I was a below the line person as a uh, unit production manager who was responsible for managing the crew, the budget, the production schedule, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I had been doing movies of the week and I came over to Paramount to do this movie of the week, sort of, which was a pilot uh, called The Next Generation. And uh, I, I agreed to stay on for uh, the beginning of the series. But at Christmas that year, uh, I decided I told them that I was going to leave because I didn't want to do series episodic television because it's a grind. Mm -hmm. And I was more interested in doing uh, movies of the week or pilots where I could move on from one to another, and not get locked into a long-term commitment to something that I found uh, with a certain amount of drudgery. So I told them I was going to leave as the production manager at Christmas. And they said, uh, well, what if we make you an offer you can't refuse? And they did. They offered me an above the line position mm -hmm. as a producer, which was more money, an above the line producer uh, job, and less work. So what would you guys do? Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. definitely. No-brainer. Above the line, yeah. yeah. It was a no-brainer. So uh, it, it, was, it was great. And I'm, I'm forever grateful to uh, Bob Justman and Rick Berman, who were the, the co-supervising producers at the time. And the rest is history. Thank you to Mr. Berman. So what would you tell someone going, like who's like in film school now and who wants to do what you thought you wanted to do? You know, like, is it a similar path or are things different because of the different technologies and the different options that are out there? If somebody wants to be a filmmaker, then go make a film. There's mm -hmm. no, there's no reason you can't do it now. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 what's Spielberg's uh, movie? The, the, some, the needle. The, oh, the, the, the new one that just came out. The field, right? Whatever the name of the, it al is. the yeah. album ends or. Yeah. 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 yeah like it's, it's, it's a biopic, so to speak. Yeah, it's about him making films as a kid i mean mm -hmm. and and with this with this digital equipment if you have a story go out and make a make a film don't become a production manager and work at the mm -hmm. bottom as a pa make a film mm -hmm. uh, i I, I, will, I will be honest with you david when i was about 11 12 years old i had a friend of mine with a super 8 camera and we used to shoot our own stop motion films and animated films and we actually i think i told this story one time before we actually built star trek sets in this garage with cardboard because we wanted to film film our own star trek show you know yeah. so 
Why? Exactly. So to answer your question, do that. Don't spend your time in any other mm -hmm. any other uh, way. Just go out and make a movie. There's no there's no reason you can't do it. It's so it's it's and it's free. It doesn't cost you any money if you nice. have that passion. And mm -hmm. and the great filmmakers had that passion as kids. And Steven Spielberg's a, a great example of it. George Lucas oh. is a great example. I went to SC Film School and. There was a guy two years ahead of us who we used to watch his films that he made in film school as an example of what to aspire to. And that guy was George Lucas. He had a film called THX that he made yeah. at mm -hmm. film school. And that yeah. ended up being the first feature. Well, come on. He was, what, 19 years old at the time? 20 years old? So yeah. there's no reason well, to... We had I'm just yeah. applied to film school, so I'm I'm excited. But yeah, you did well. Yeah, I did. Well, I've, I'm Good still waiting thing. to get some transcripts sorted out because but like it, my login isn't working. It sounds yeah. like don't worry about the school. Just <laughs> make yeah. some stuff. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> I've been making a lot of stuff. You don't need to go to Not, you don't, school. Is great because you get to see you know you get to hang out with a lot of cool people and and talk pretentiously about you know French films. But the, you don't need that if if you have the talent, it's going to show through that the lens of that camera, no matter what you do. And if you create a story, it's it's in it's innate in you. It's an artistic ability that nobody can teach you. You're either born with it or you're not. And the best way to find out is, is to is to try is to tell a story. Same thing with writing. Uh, look at all the young writers out there. It's it's it their their ability manifests itself when they're eight years old and they're writing poems and short stories, right? Isn't, isn't that not true? Isn't well, yes, but so I'll, as a, as a writer though, what I've seen over the years is there are certain aspects that just by doing it, you do need to do it, mm -hmm. but some of it can be learned and taught, not necessarily in school, but by the act of doing it, you have to practice. You can't just go to a class and then all of a sudden, boom, you're gonna write something. You, you do have to, to practice it, but you improve by the practice. You right. need your 10,000 hours. There's yes, no yes, that's, that's yes. Practice your yeah. You can't say yes. I'm a writer after you write one short story that yes. gets that gets published in your school newspaper, yeah. okay? Yeah. You got to put in the 10,000 hours. I, I put in my 10,000 hours both as a director and as a photographer. Mm -hmm. So I can say that I have done everything I can do to try and be able to express myself creatively. The, well, when you, when you talk about a young filmmaker just going ahead and doing it, we did interview one in one of our episodes. We interviewed Tommy Kraft, who did the film Star Trek Horizon that's on YouTube. And here's a kid who never went to film school. He was a musician by, by learning, but he was so enamored by Enterprise that he wanted to make his own film. And we had a really fun time interviewing him, finding yeah. how he went about the process of making his own movie and you could do it like you said if you have the equipment or you have the the you just go ahead and make it you know yeah. although in, in his case he had done some crowdfunding right to actually because yeah i think so yeah he got it but he did put up a lot of his own money to do yeah. that but yeah he ended up crowdfunding about twenty five thousand to pay for it yeah. uh yeah. or to help offset the costs i'm not an entrepreneur but i have great respect for for people who do that. So kudos to him. Send me his email. I uh, will send I will send you the contact information, definitely. Um, yeah, because and there's something else I wanted to uh, share with you later. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, when you were, you mentioned about, you know, when you were on uh, TNG, but in the uh, shuttle pod interview, you talked about DIT, director in training. Was that what you did during when you were above the line or below the line at at um, at that it, time, it was when I was above the line. It's when I became a producer. Okay. And one of my jobs as a producer would be to sit in dailies, which is where you looked at the previous days. They're called rushes because they rush the film to get to you, so you can watch it the next day. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I would sit in the the daily screening with Rick Berman uh, every day, and we would uh, go over his notes um, and. In that process, I would make comments about the coverage and the footage and what the other director, what the director of, of the day was doing. And Rick, uh, it resonated, my comments resonated with Rick to the point where he said, would you like to participate in the director and training program? Do you want to, do you want to direct an episode? 
if you go through this program. And I was reticent at first, and then I said, okay, and I went into therapy again for about nine months, six months, uh, trying to overcome my fear. Uh, but he, he said I could go into the DIT program. And what it was was something that Rick Berman set up where people, cast members and crew members that went through the director and training program could then apply to direct an episode. And during that director and training program process, you had to uh, study other directors. You had to go to the editing room. You had to go uh, spend time on the set on your own time observing and absorb and doing scene study and all this other kind of stuff uh, to, to, to prepare yourself to direct. And uh, Jonathan Frakes was the first graduate and did a fantastic job in his first episode and, and set the tenor for the rest of his great career as a director. Mm -hmm. And, and Rick gave a multitude of actors and. Did he, did he do that for LeVar Burton? It was, did he also go through the process as well? LeVar went through, LeVar went yeah. through school. Um, uh, and so many of uh, the actors uh, did that. And, and I went through it and Rick gave me a shot and, I must have done okay on the first one because he gave me a second one and then he gave me a third one and I ended at 62. So I must have done something right. Obviously. You did nope. everything right. <laughs> well, we were, we, we were talking about those two episodes uh, from Next Generation, uh, Mind's Eye and Power Play. And I think we, I don't think we, did we decide, did we collectively decide which one, you know, was our favorite or which one? <laughs> Ooh, that's a hard, I don't think we decided <laughs> that. No. But it, it's hard. I think. I, I I I don't know. It's hard to say because I feel like they're both like very specific things, mm -hmm. and I enjoy them both. I think maybe Power Play just because it's fun. I don't know why I love watching like Angry Data, and mm -hmm. the the phaser fight in the um, ten Ford is really cool. But the Mind's Eye, is I like, like the Mind's Eye. I think like I, how I think is for me it's clearly like clear. how is Jordy not traumatized? But I mean, like what mm -hmm. a cool idea! Like in that episode, really up until the end, it's like man, there's no. No place to breathe. It's like so intense. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite movies is The Manchurian Candidate. I'm a oh great, gosh, I'm yeah, a great John Frankenheimer. Yes, and The Mind's Eye is is The Manchurian Candidate. Mm -hmm. And I actually, nobody knows this but me. I actually recreated one shot from The Manchurian Candidate. Oh wow, where where uh, Lavar or Jordy has to shoot somebody and they fall over in a backwards in a chair, and it's it's the same shot as. Uh, from the Manchurian Candidate. Um, but I'm also a fan of, of power play, again, because of the writing. I always loved episodes where our characters didn't play themselves or they went mm. into environments mm -hmm. that, that weren't our normal. Anything to get off the spaceship and out of the dumb suits and do something outside of their usual mm -hmm. character. And both the Mind's Eye and power play were, were those cases where... Mm -hmm. They weren't themselves, yeah. or they were tortured and and had to not act and couldn't act like themselves. Yeah, the one of the final scenes of the Mind's Eye, where he's with in therapy with yeah. Troy. That that just I, I can still watch that now and I get chills from when she just kind of cal calmly says, you know, uh, and when you saw the Romulan ship, what did you do? And he's like, I did. And he's like, wait, that wasn't there before. That just I, I still get chills from that that yeah, scene. The Lord did a, did a great job. I tortured. Him. Um, cause I, I tend to be a little bit, uh, obsessive and his nickname for me on the, ep uh, episode, and it still sticks with me. He called me David Hyperopia. I saw LeVar last week. He looks great. He's, yeah. Well, I, I don't is know he participating in Trek Talks too? I, I've asked him. I haven't heard back officially. Okay. But, uh, it, it would be, be great, great. If it, but everybody's got a lot of things going on and yeah. what he's done for literacy is mm -hmm. amazing with reading rainbow and mm -hmm. things to that. It's, it's really admirable that that was his, his passion and, and how he's inspired so many young people to, to pick up a book. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's literacy has always been my, that's my go-to kind of passion philanthropy. You know, I donate to our local literacy stuff. I don't have, cause I have, you know, I'm, I'm currently in a situation where I have a full-time job and my own young kids. So I don't have a lot of time to volunteer. So I'm in the, I try to raise money and, you know, do things uh, until I'm a little older and have time in yeah. theory. <laughs> well, um, if you don't mind, uh, David, 
yeah, as I mentioned, I've been watching Star Trek since the very first episode, and I've watched all these series on and off, whatever. And it was Enterprise that rekindled me, but I, I have to go back because people say to me, What's your favorite episode of the history of Star Trek? And it is, without a doubt, Shuttle Pod One. <laughs> so good. And Yay! yeah, Yay! without a doubt, it is. And and actually, um, and I'd like to send you this. I wrote a article for the website Warp Track. Warp Factor Trek, where I compared Shuttle Pod 1 to the Samuel Beckett play Waiting for Godot and how the film was the shot, the episode was shot as if it was a stage production. And you had mentioned, and you and you and Connor used that word in the interview on Shuttle Pod of a play. When you filmed that, was that in your mind that you were looking at a stage production that this could have been on a stage presented that way? Well, you bring up Waiting for Godot. Um, it, by its nature of just having these two people stand, uh, locked in this environment, it has a innate theatricality. But mm -hmm. my job, and my job as a director was to attempt to visualize it in a way that it didn't come off as a proscenium piece. And one of the things I had the, the construction crew do at lunch one day was to actually saw the set in half so that I could get different camera angles because my challenge was to visually keep it alive uh, the best way that I could. And that was my, I feel my contribution to the show was to, to visually uh, give it some oomph. Otherwise, I think it would have uh, it wouldn't have been as interesting. Well, thank you for listening to part one of our interview with David Livingston. Next week we'll have part two. Make sure in the meantime you check out TrekTalks.net to learn more about how you can support the Hollywood Food Coalition, and make sure you listen and watch on January fourteenth. You'll be entertained and inspired to give towards this great organization. I'm Brian Donahue. Until next time, live long and prosper.